Uh, good morning. Good to be with you. I'm sorry, I was um, crying a lot in that song, which often happens when that song plays. So I'm going to get Josh back for that later. Um, so I've, I'm just kind of actually genuinely collecting myself a moment. So uh, if I, my voice squeaks a moment, bear with me. Um, but I wanted to speak to you um, this morning, or rather, to be honest, Alan wanted me to speak to you this morning about, but I'm saying I'd like to. It's going to have to be fun. Um, on understanding post-Christendom. So what I want to do, um, we've got a sort of... a. a a, a nice little mix of things we're going to be doing today. Going to do some stuff on corporate worship and going to do, we'll have some Q&A uh, later. Rachel and I will talk and then going to have some stuff on worshiping God tomorrow and some stuff on men and women in ministry. But two of the sessions today I want to do on post-Christendom or post-Christianity. I don't know what term you, you prefer. Um, a lot of people don't like either of those terms because they don't like the idea that our best days are behind us, which, spoiler alert, no, they, they're not. Ultimately, the whole world is pre-Christendom because one day the, all of the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. So I want to take that for red, but you know what we mean, the idea that the, there was a sort of a, a Christian realm that lasted somewhere around 1,500 years to varying degrees in the West and that the last, depending in Europe, the last 70-odd years, and in the US, it almost feels like in the last 10, um, the sort of the culture is, is leaving that behind at, at, a, at a rapider pace. Actually, where you are in Europe, it's taken a much longer journey. But whereas here, and depending on where you live in the States, it might feel very sudden, or to be honest, it might even feel like it hasn't happened yet. Um, but clearly, there's many parts of your nation now you could visit and you'd say, yeah, this Christendom as it was is, you know, we're not in Kansas anymore. It's not that, you know, that kind of, was that... Does that reference translate at all? Yeah, you do. Oh, that's good. I don't know. I know my accent is not great. I'm trying to work on my R's at the end of words. Um, so I'm, uh, several of you today I've greeted and no one's noticed. I've gone, morning. And, and they, people have just gone, morning. And as if nothing's happened. And I'm like, <laughs> um, it's just me practicing my American, but it's not great. Um, but that actually we are. We're leaving, you know, society is and has for all sorts of reasons. I want to look at it a bit in this session, leaving that world behind a bit. And we need to understand how to engage and how to think about and get the backstory of and minister in a culture that is, depending on where we live, increasingly leaving that behind. And I think that's just the reality that we're in. I imagine we probably don't need convincing of it at a simple level of observation, but I am aware that there's very widely different cultural contexts within your country. It's a big place. Um, probably nowhere in the US, with possible exception of San Francisco and New York, are as maybe Boston, I guess, um, as secular as Western Europe, where I'm from, obviously where we're from. Um, but there are, there's a big, big spectrum in your nation. I know that. So I'm going to be talking about that trend in a general way. But what I'm going to do is actually spend a, a session this morning looking at how we understand it. Where does it come from? How does it work? And then this evening in the open event, I'm going to talk more about how we reach it. And so there's a more sort of positive message, I hope, which may, I hope will help people who are coming from the church to join us as well. Um, but I want us to just to, uh, sort of think about this, this world and where it goes. So I'm going to give a couple of sketches of it. This first one was actually taken from a guy I only met a month ago, but he had been running a course in Redeemer, New York. Uh, no, not that one. Sorry. The, the, um, where's the picture of the, the, the person made up of with the wearing that? that one? Okay, great. Thanks. So there is basically a post-Christian story. These keywords, you may, may not be able to read all of the, the words on these slides. There's one in particular. You won't. Um, but categories like science, freedom, happiness, identity, power, progress, and justice. And the story that post-Christian people live in and have inherited much of it from Christianity, as we'll see, but they're no longer using Christian, the, the Christian metaphysical claims 
about the nature of creation, the nature of the world, the incarnation, death, resurrection of Jesus. Those people have moved beyond that. They've said, no, we don't believe that, but they've still got a lot of Christian legacy in the way they think about what good, what is good and what's true and what's beautiful. And actually they're right about a lot of it because they got it from Christianity, but they don't realize that it's not supported any longer by the, by the metaphysical claims of Christianity. So what happens is you continue to take a lot of Christian values and live as if they're obviously true, but you've left the reason why they're true behind. And so the question is open as to what happens. Does the Christian capital eventually run out? Do people, in a hundred years' time, do people still affirm all of these things in a broadly Christian way, given that they don't no longer believe in God? How, how does that work? So we will see, and we'll come back to that. But the story goes something like this. You have to do, in, in the, the aim of life is you have to do what makes you happy. That's really important in the post-Christian story. And happiness effectively comes from finding out who you are on the inside, listening to your heart, you might say, and living in line with it in such a way that expresses and is true to your identity, which is found within. It's not given to you from outside. It's something, or bequeathed to you. And in most cultures, you are, your identity comes from, you know, in fact, you, even today, you meet someone and you say, who are you? And, you know, what, what's the second question after you say, what's your name? See, in, in the West, it'd be, what, what do you do? Um, and then you quite quickly begin to understand who they are through that lens. Whereas in many cultures, you say, oh, I'm, I'm the son of this person. I'm the daughter of that person. I'm from this tribe. I'm from this, these people. That's where my, or maybe I'm from this religion. That's where my identity comes from. It's from outside. Whereas in the West now, people see that identity as operating within. And the way you get happy is to live in line with your identity and express it, which is why sex is so important to modern people. That's why living in truth, living in line with your sexual identity is critical to human flourishing in a post-Christian context. Because it's at the very heart of what it is to be a person, is your sexual desires and your preferences. And if you don't, can't, don't get to live in line with them, and even to have society recognize and validate them, you're not living a truly flourishing human life. And so celibacy doesn't make any sense in this kind of story, because it's a renunciation of the desire that runs very deep in people. And I was just my friend, uh, Glenn Scrivener, last week, he and I were talking about this. He made the point that actually the early church presented to the world two things that denied the most fundamental human needs. They, actually three, in, in many ways. Fasting, which denied the need for bodily food. Celibacy, which denied the need for sex. And martyrdom, which denied the need for life. And said, actually, these most fundamental things that everyone needs to flourish, the Christians said, no, we don't. We will live without those things, if need be, and die without those things. But in, for a modern person, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't work because the post-Christian story is ultimately your joy is unlocked from within as you express your identity. So your sexual desires are very important. And that means that personal freedom is incredibly important because it's no longer an abstraction about, which in your country, the, the obsession with freedom really comes from a political claim, didn't it? I was going to say rebellion, um, which is obviously people on, on my side of the Atlantic believe it is. Um, um, but, uh, but as in it was a political, it, it was, you know, the live free or die is, 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 and all that kind of thing is essentially a, is a political statement about the right or the limited right of government to interfere with your right as an individual. But it wasn't expressed into anything like the number of realms of ordinary life that it is now, because your personal freedom to do whatever you feel what led to do by your heart is at the heart of what it means to be a flourishing person. And no one can tell you that your desires are wrong. Because if they do, what they're effectively doing is denying you ultimate happiness. And therefore, a big part of the work of justice 
is to ensure that every group in society is able to live as they see fit, particularly those groups who have been marginalized historically. So you can see there's a, there's a lot of Christianity, even to, there's a bunch of non-Christianity in it as well, a lot of Christianity to this story. The only way you can actually, so you then say, okay, well, so how does knowledge work? If you don't have God revealing things, how does knowledge work? And the answer, of course, is science. You find out through being educated and particularly scientific knowledge is the key to all true knowledge. And anybody who goes beyond that and makes a claim to ultimate truth that is not scientifically verifiable is ultimately making a claim for power. And that is essentially, that's what the structures of this world are. They are, you know, to be honest, people like me, middle-class, middle-aged white men who are trying to exert power over you by teaching you some things are true and some things are not, even if they're not scientifically verifiable. And that story is quite important because how else do you account for the fact that some people don't believe the truth or don't believe science? And so we hold on, to, basically there is a struggle for power taking place in society. And actually anyone who claims ultimate truth is often then resisting finally progress, which is the natural trajectory of the human race which is that we are advancing further and faster and better as we go past each generation. We learn, we discover, we hand it on to the next generation and knowledge grows that way. And as a result, we are becoming gradually emancipated. That's a short version of the post-Christian story uh, that, you know, I mean, to a greater or lesser degree, some of us are going, oh, no, that's total nonsense. Some of us are going, yeah, a lot of that, I buy that. And a lot of, most of us I expect are going, there's some good in that, some bad in that, but a lot of people in my community live in that story all the time. That's how it works, right? A more, slightly more sort of um, corporate and, and emphatic expression of this, if you just put the next one, the, the post-Christian creed. This is the post-Christian creed that, as I've, obviously you see this sign a lot and you drive, it depends. I haven't seen it here, actually, in this area as I've been driving around, but I've seen it a lot in the US, these signs. In this house, we believe Black Lives Matter, women's rights are human rights, no human is illegal, science is real, love is love, Kindness is everything. Now, you, you know probably that there are political claims behind each of those statements. But if you just leave the political claims aside for a moment, all of those statements are clearly true, right? Kindness is everything might be a little strong. But all of those statements are not just true, but they're also incredibly Christian in their framing, aren't they? That is not how ancient pagans saw the world. Have you ever read Homer? Or, you know, I mean, that no one thinks like this. Aristotle doesn't think like this. The Muslims don't think like that. It's just not the way that it's not ancient Confucius didn't think like that. This is a Christian set of values. And of course, it's expressed in creedal form. In this house, we believe it is literally a creed. And a lot of people, maybe in your neighborhood, I don't know, I've seen a plenty when I've been driving around this country in the last couple of years, would have that up. Now, actually, you can individually go, I agree with all of those things. I know behind them, there's a some political claims which I might or might not agree with, and I probably agree with some more than others, but leave that for now. But as a set of statements, they reflect Christian teaching about the world. And they, on all of them, I mean, none of those statements, um, love is love, obviously on the face of it means nothing at all, but you know what I mean. It, what, what, what it doesn't, but, but what, I, what I mean is the centrality of love is all you need is love is a song you could only sing in a deeply Christian society. So the irony of the Beatles singing, love is all you need, at the same time as saying, we're bigger than Jesus now. It's just like, man, if you sang those words in Viking Britain or pagan Greece or, I don't know, in, in any society, in the kingdom of Mansa Musa in Mali in the 13th century or in Confucian China, people would just stare at you as if you had no idea what you were doing. That's, love is not the most important value. You read any ancient writers, no one believes that until 
kind of until Jesus and the Apostle Paul. It just isn't how people talk about the world. They say, no, honor is more important. Victory is more What are you talking about? Love is all you need. There's just an absolute nonsense outside of a Christian framing. And so all of these beliefs are actually very Christian in their shape. Now, they've then lost their Christian moorings and become free-floating beliefs to which all educated, responsible members of society must aspire. And if you don't aspire to those beliefs, you are a fundamentally a low-status person which is behind a lot of the political rancor in your nation over the last seven years, right? Isn't it? There is effectively, these are high status beliefs, there are low status beliefs, and there's kind of a battle playing out every, well, I was going to say every four years, it isn't really, it seems non-stop battle playing out as to which of those two camps will prevail. And they don't map directly onto political parties, and please, I don't, I've got myself in enough trouble before talking politics in this country, so I'm not going to do that. But do you see that actually there is a Christian shape to that, which, but then his political application has become a sort of test of whether or not you have the right opinions. But the interesting thing is those opinions, though their political expression may not be very Christian and is often held by people who hate evangelical Christianity, but actually the opinions themselves derive from Christianity and couldn't have derived from anywhere else. That is simply not how people think today in most of the world. And it was not how people in this part of the world thought until Christianity got here. And that would be true almost everywhere. The, the natural world is comprehensible. Science is real. All human beings, regardless of ethnicity or race, are equally valuable and worthy of dignity and respect and protection, Black Lives Matter, and regardless of sex. Women's rights are human rights. No human is illegal. So all of these values are deeply Christian, and it's expressed in an explicitly creedal way. We believe. So I went for breakfast this morning in a cafe. Just Rachel and I went, oh, just Google and see where's a nice place to go for breakfast. Found one, stopped on the way up on Brea Boulevard, went in, had breakfast, and as we're sitting there, there's a little placard. I mean, it's just a breakfast place. It's not a, it's not a church, right? But just on the, on, there's a placard on one of the walls saying, love one another. On another wall, it said, I think, faith, family, and friendship. And I just, this is, this is, a, this is perfect. I'm about to speak on this, but it's everywhere, right? The whole world is taking Christian values and even phrases that come directly from the Bible. But whereas 50 years ago, it would say, love one another, close quotes, John 15 or whatever. Now it just says it as if it's obviously what we should all do without the substructure of Christianity to ground it. I call it Protestant paganism. Because it is, effectively, it's very Protestant in its sense that it's a very strong emphasis on faith and what we believe and our convictions being incredibly important to who we are. But at the same time, it's pagan because it's removed, metaphysically removed God and basically has collapsed the world that is, you know, if you come across the language of one, Peter Jones's language of oneism and twoism, that Christians are basically twoists, which is we believe that there are two types of thing in the world, in in two types of being. There is God, who is the ground of all being, and there's creation. Paganism is fundamentally oneism. It is that the gods and creation are fundamentally part of the same mix. So the ancient Greek gods are part of this world. They're not transcendent from it. They're in it, and they're just more powerful than you. But they basically, they stand to you like you stand to a hedgehog. And Christians have never believed that. We say, no, there is God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and there is everything else. And so this is, a, this is a pagan, reflects a pagan way of thinking about matter, but a Protestant way of thinking about morality. Um, and you really do see, you know, people, they do, they preach repentance. 
you know, if you don't believe this and you don't affirm it correctly, you are, you need to repent. You need to be awakened. Yeah, you need to be evangelized. I probably can't use this. Have we got, still got kids? Yeah, we do have some kids. No, okay, that story I will leave for now. But there's an interesting story I will I tell in the book, but um, just fascinating examples of how fiercely people will preach and disciple and catechize. And as I say, much of it I agree with in, in outline. It's just, but, but the point is it's got a very Christian moral grammar to it and the evangelistic fervor that categorized Protestant missionaries. And iconoclasm too, tearing down of statues and icons. It's a very Protestant thing to do, isn't it? That's what the reformers did. They're like, oh, no, we can't have all of these. What the first thing people do is think we're going to pull these down. Um, now, as an alternative response, some people make just the next one, which I quite like, just for a joke. In this house, we believe that simplistic platitudes, trite tautologies, and semantically overloaded aphorisms are poor substitutes for respectful and rational discussions about complex issues, which I just think is quite nice. I don't actually know whether anyone has that on their front yard, but um, I just throw that out there for a bit of, bit of light relief. Now, the next page is my attempt to... I'm not trying to dunk on the sign. I'm not trying to dunk on the sign. I hope you, you hear what I'm saying, right? That, that re- it's a good summary. Rebecca McLaughlin calls it the secular creed, that that's what it is. And, and, but it is, of course, deeply Christian, as secularism necessarily is. Muslims don't become secular. Actually, Chinese communists don't become secular. It's ex-Christian people who become secular because they believe, ultimately, in the fact in the, that there is a limitation to worldly power beneath the authority of God, and therefore church and state eventually get separated, and the privatization of religion is part of what we do. So secularism is a very ex-Christian thing, as opposed to an ex-Islamic, ex-communist, ex-animist kind of belief. I hope this is helping make people think. I mean, there'll be lots of things, lots of planes circling, we won't land them all and so on, but there's a lot lot to think about here. Now, this next, this next book, this is my book in one page and you won't be able to read it. So I'm apologizing for that. I didn't know the side. I saw the screen on a Sunday and then I hadn't clocked how small it was here. Um, but don't worry because I will talk you through it. But this is basically the, the argument of the, of the book that Alan was referring to yesterday. Rather smugly, I think. That I'm the only person in the world who's got one of these. Um, so I just thought I'd mention that and drop it. It was just great fun. Um, but, but effectively, I, something I've done, I just, I've tried to, uh, to tell the story of how the modern West became like. It, on the previous page, with reference to the seven transformations of 1776. Now, I found that generally when I say that, Americans all say, oh, you think we became post-Christian because we overthrew George III? And I'm like, pretty much. Uh, but, but no, no that's, not, that isn't, that, that, that's not the argument. But the argument I make in the book is that we are now, and you might have come across this acronym before, we are now in a society that is weirder. So if you, if you can read the, simply the word weirder on the, left, on the left-hand side, that's the only thing you need for now, which is an acronym for Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich, Democratic, Ex-Christian, and Romantic. Now, the first five, weird, are now quite widespread in psychology literature. The term was only invented 15 years ago, but it's now become very... So people like Joseph Henrich at Harvard and Jonathan Haidt, you may have come across that name, uh, use this as a standard category for describing you guys and 300 million odd people in this nation and 500 million odd people in Western Europe and a handful of others. In contrast to the other six and a half billion people who live on this planet who do not think the same way. And but that is a, that's a, a way of categorizing what's distinctive about what we now call Western society. And what I've done is to add two other words. So weird but called it weird earth. So actually there is a, an ex or a post-Christian dynamic to the society. 
and romantic. And what I do in the book is really to tell the story about how that happened through the year 1776, which I will not go on about, but it's basically to say that there is a series of transformations in that in the year that your nation was founded that have nothing to do, many of them have nothing to do with America. I mean, as appalling as that is, I hear Ron Swanson in my head from Parks and Rec just going, history began on the 4th of July, 1776. Everything before that was a mistake, which I just think is a fantastic comment. But there are other things that also happen. And so what's going on is a globalization through the journeys of, of James Cook, Captain Cook, and his voyages around the South Pacific, which he set sail in 76. Um, the Enlightenment, which is happening in particularly in France, but also most of uh, Western Europe, a little bit in, in some little parts of what's become in the US, but mostly in, in France, Germany, Immanuel Kant, Edward Gibbon, uh, Voltaire, Diderot, so on. So many of those key figures are working at the time. So there's a sort of high emphasis on, on enlightenment and knowledge as the key to the freedom of the human race. Industrialization, the Industrial Revolution, I would say, basically starts in this year uh, with the invention of James Watt's steam engine, and various other things that kick in that year that basically mean that industrial technology is gonna take over the world as of course, imagine every single one of us got here by car, we got through a modified version of James Watt's engine, which was uh, started producing things on, uh, on the 8th of March, 1776. And then the very next day, Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations, which is the key text in the history of modern economics. And that's the beginning of what, uh, that, that happens at the same time as what we call the great enrichment, which is the, for the, we're walking down the list, Western, educated, industrialized, rich. If you look at a graph of the history of humanity, uh, in terms of wealth per person, you'll find it basically does this for thousands and thousands of years. And then somewhere in the 1770s, it just goes and disappears off the chart, as does life expectancy, which hovers for most of human history at around 25 to 30, and then doubles in the next 70 odd years after this and is still shooting that globally, still shooting upwards. So people just become dramatically wealthier. And obviously that's related to many of these other changes. Democratic, you probably don't need me to sell you on that one, um, that democracy in its modern form originates in 1776, basically. Um, there is ancient version of democracy, which goes way back to Athens, but it's completely different in what it meant and who participated. Um, and so you don't need to me, me to tell you that story, but I do find that Thomas Paine's comment in Common Sense is but just the most encapsulated, it's just the most beautiful summary of almost modernity that I've ever come across. We have it in our power to begin the world over again. Only a very Christianized and yet forward-looking progressive sort of person could say that. Only someone who believed, had a Christian eschatology that they were gradually shaking off the Christian bits could say something like that. Um, and so it's a lovely example of that. So that sort of uh, power to remake everything. But then also it's a year in which you see the big makings of ex-Christianity and romanticism. Um, that really, David Hume, one of the great modern atheists, um, he writes the dialogues about natural religion in 1776 and then dies that summer. Um, you have, and, and my favorite example, there's various others. We look at the Marquis de Sade, who's not a, not a nice guy, in all sorts of ways, Dennis Diderot, Edward Gibbon, lots of key writers writing in this year saying basically we need to leave Christianity behind. But my favorite illustration of the post-Christian West comes in the draft of your very own Declaration of Independence. Okay, so the next page. And we'll come back to romanticism in a moment. We get, right. So you may have seen this before. 
Um, you, I'm sure you've seen the word. I know you have seen the words before. Right? You may have seen, who's seen this draft before? So this is the, yeah, working one. No one else? Okay, you, two, okay. So this is a good story. So about a week before, just over a week, late June, before, a week before the declaration is, obviously it isn't actually signed by everybody on the 4th of July, but we'll leave that for now. But you know, it, as in before the myth says, it was signed by everyone on the 4th of July. But about a week before that, Thomas Jefferson writes to Ben Franklin and he says, here's my draft, basically. Would you be able to make any edits? He says it in a more flowery way because he says it in 18th century English. And you can see in Jefferson's right, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for a people, and Franklin goes, no, one people, all that stuff. You know, so there's lots of little, little tweaks. But you can't see it probably here. But you can look at this one. We hold these truths to be... And what's been crossed out here, what Jefferson originally wrote was sacred and undeniable. We hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable, that all men are created equal, uh, and, that, and all the rest of it that you know. But what Ben Franklin did, and it's one of the most, it's just a fascinating parable of the post-Christian world we live in, is he crossed out sacred and undeniable and replaced it with self-evident which is what the post-Christian West has been doing ever since. They said, so Jefferson was actually right. Right? It is not remotely self-evident that all men are created equal and have been granted certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that you get the right to overthrow any government that doesn't preserve them. That is not remotely self-evident. In fact, it wasn't even self-evident to many of the founding fathers 15 years before this document was written. You find that a lot of them, you read their letters, they're, they're debating whether or not they should even say this or whether or not they believe it. It certainly wasn't self-evident to British people. But it wasn't self-evident to almost all people on earth except a handful of North American Puritans and deists in this year. The, the idea of saying this is a self-evident belief is absolutely risible. So of course it's not self-evident. The, the only way people can believe that is if they already believe that there is a creator who grants people inalienable rights. And that he's created all human beings in the image of God, which means they're equal. And that he's ordained governors who are limited in their authority by his divine authority and many, many other beliefs that most people in history have not shared. Billions of people today still don't believe that's self-evidently true. Now, sorry, I'm just basically calling out your declaration as a total lie, which it is, in, in that particular phrase. As in, Jefferson was right, though, because what Jefferson said was these truths are sacred and undeniable. As in, these are ultimate, Jefferson's not a Christian. Uh, well, there's a lot of debate. What kind of a criminal that? I would not open that. Read Thomas Kidd about it. But I think Jefferson is no, certainly not what you and I would think of as an evangelical Christian. I'm sure we can agree on that. But Jefferson is saying, but these truths have come to us from religion. That's where we got them. They are sacred beliefs to us. And Ben Franklin says, no, they're not. They're grounded not in religion. They're grounded in reason. Everyone who thinks about them for long enough will eventually conclude this. And the... A lot depends on who you think's right in that debate. Are these things ultimately grounded in scripture or are they grounded in things that are obvious to anyone who thinks about them for long enough? And you just simply need to leave the Western world for a few days and you will quickly discover that they, of course, they're not self-evident to everybody and still to this day, in many ways, not self-evident to many even in the West. There's so many examples, you don't know where to start, but I, I think probably one of the most recent examples in which you think, wow, this is a good example is the... I don't know whether you would use this term, but the 9-11 wars, right? So after 9-11, the, the wars that take place. One of the things that happens is Western people, not just in your country, but in mine, are convinced really that if you overthrow dictators, 
that it is so self-evident that Western democracy and liberal values will flourish in their place that you just basically get rid of the dictator and that's what will happen. In fact, even in Afghanistan last summer, as, was it last summer or no? A year and a half ago. I forget which year it was. Um, but even as people are leaving Afghanistan, they're going, well, are we going to, maybe for 20 years, we built there and we, you can see these videos of Western people educating Afghan girls and talking about trans rights. And these Afghan girls are staring at them as if they've got three heads. And you, you think, this is not going to end well because these values are not self-evident at all that all men and women are created equal, that all people have been endowed with certain inalienable rights. These things are Christian convictions that you are, have lived on Christian inheritance for so long you've forgotten where they came from. And now you think that you can get rid of the God that supports those beliefs and the scriptures that grounds them all and move on because we all agree on it. And of course... The 9-11 wars are a good example of what happens when you are overconfident in how obvious your values are. That's not to make a comment about the, the military side of it at all. That's just to say, that's what's happened since, isn't it? They're not self-evident. Of course they are. Um, now, I'm not trying to do this to give you a problem with your own declaration, although that's kind of a, a fun byproduct. From uh, I basically, I'm still trying to get you guys back for the way you portrayed the king in Hamilton. So um, I just felt that, that's just collateral damage in this story. But, but there's obviously, there's a very serious point. These things, of course, they are not self-evident at all. So just go back to the previous one, then back to the, the, the final page on the table. So we are, in that sense, in an, in an ex-Christian world we are, we, in which we have assumed Christianity has become so normalized and its views of what of the image of God in humanity means that you can say black lives matter, no humans are legal, women's rights are human rights, and everyone rightly agrees with you on those claims, whether or not they agree on all the policy implications. But they agree with you because they have been Christianized so deeply that they don't think to challenge them. But actually, the metaphysics of their own belief system doesn't sustain it at all. Um, Yuval Noah Harari's book, Sapiens, I don't know if you've come across that, but it sold like 30 million copies. Um, if you get an endorsement from Barack Obama and you don't have to put it on the front cover because it's got a better endorsement from Bill Gates, you know your book's doing well. His book does that, and he's, he's fascinating. He says, in the end, these, the, the declaration, it, it, he makes exactly the same point, really. He says, these, these things are not obvious. In fact, what's obvious to us is that all creatures have evolved to compete with each other, and they desire life, and they desire pleasure. Um, but those things are not alienable. They're not rights. We don't, there's no equality. In, that's, none of those things are what we would infer if we simply looked at the world. Those things, and he's not a Christian at all. He says, but we get those things from Christianity. And he, of course, he's happy to say, and I don't believe it, but I think society's nicer if you believe that. We'll come back to what to do about that later on. And then, uh, and then finally, romanticism. Romantic. So what you have in the West now is you have these two giant ideological forces shaping people that conflict with each other and actually generates a lot of our most fascinating and sometimes most painful discussions as a culture. Because alongside that ex-Christianity, that very strong Christian, these truths are, we now think, self-evident, even though really they're ultimately sacred truths. Alongside that, you have the development of Romanticism, which is a sort of Discover who you are in your heart and express it out into the world. The movement in art and music and literature, that, surprise, surprise, is also percolating and originating in 1776 through people like, well, you may know these names, Goethe, Klinger, Herder, Lenz, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, many others in this period, the first sexual revolution in London. And you really have a, a lot going on that is leading people over the next generation to write things like 
I wandered lonely as a cloud. And those poems, things are basically, this is my life as I am wandering this world. I'm discovering who I am within. I'm expressing it out. That the way art works, the way music works, depending on your field, you may you know this transition taking place in the visual arts. And people stop just painting landscapes and they start painting a sort of slightly more expressive vision of what they can see that involves their imagination, not just you know, William Blake, people like who's also operating in this period. Um, and they start drawing things that are not actually there in front of them, and combining religion and symbolism and imaginary things as well as the external world they can see and painting. You walk through a gallery, I mean, I, I noticed it long before I'd ever thought of this project. You walk through, where, in my city, the National Gallery, and you just see basically, well, what's, what's that line? Oh, it was on Twitter. Somebody said, that's, they, <laughs> they said it was overheard. Someone was walking out of the National Gallery and they tweeted it. And it was such a great quote. And they overheard someone else behind them in the queue say, that's basically Western art for the last 2,000 years. 1,500 years of crucifixions, then stripes. <laughs> that's what he said. And I just thought that was such a funny description of Western art. Like, 1,500 years of crucifixions, then stripes. It's like this transition is taking place. People stop representing God and begin to start saying, this is what comes from within. Same thing's happening in poetry, the romantics. Same thing's happening in music. As you listen to, well, Beethoven's Eroica Symphony or whatever, and you think, what? this is this is new. The, these movements, and then within 20 or 30 years, music has completely changed. And it's all taking place as in, people are beginning to, Goethe's quote, which I put on here, which you sadly can't read, but Goethe had this lovely, he said, I return into myself and find a world. Herder talks about the need, he said, we must be true to ourselves, which sounds like it could be stated in Toy Story or Frozen, doesn't it? It's, it's so disnified now, but at the time, no one had said that before. Rousseau said, I'm going to write a book about the one subject that I really think everyone should read about, namely myself. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write about me. I'm going to tell my story. I'm going to, he didn't quite use this phrase, I'm going to live my truth. I'm going to look within and project it out. Now, that's not a Christian development. That's a philosophical, artistic, cultural development that gets embedded in our society through, initially, poetry, music, and then novels. And now every movie that's ever made has basically, every movie that's, that's not very highbrow has essentially that plot. Person is oppressed by society around them, discovers who they are, bravely takes on the powers of expectation and discovers their true self, meaning and happiness. That's the plot of nearly, nearly every movie that was on the plane options as I was flying over. It's just, and and it's, obviously it's dull in the sense that it's, it's the same story, but it's very deeply embedded in the romantic tradition in the West. And so what we have now is you have those two stories, the Christian one, the, this is... These things have become so part of the image of God, equality, all of those kind of themes, you know, compassion, the need to be sympathetic towards people who are suffering, the need to lift up the weak. He has thrown down the mighty from their seat and exalted the humble. Those are Christian themes, but those things are combining with and running in parallel with the sort of romantic tradition, which is itself also, if you go back far enough, related to Christianity as well, but leave that for now. But these two threads, I've got to look into myself, discover who I am, and project it out into the world. Alongside God, you know, God doesn't exist, but he has made all people equal. Everyone has rights. Everyone has value. Everyone should be treated with compassion. And therefore, Black Lives Matter, all human rights, no human is illegal. Women's rights are human rights. Love is love. Kindness is everything. And so you have those two intellectual currents running to alongside each other and mingling together, 
all the time. And it's the world we live in. And it creates a lot of our best art and also creates a lot of our most painful political arguments. Because we could talk lots about both of those things. But I think, I don't know what's your, what the, your favorite movie is or your favorite artistic piece is, but I did this exercise with myself. I went through lots and lots of my favorite things that I'd read or seen, and I just realized how much the, the dialogue between the Christian vision and the romantic vision is interplaying throughout all of them. Um, I mentioned Hamilton a few moments ago. It's a very good example. It's just, it is, a, in many ways, it's a romantic story because it's about a guy who's just crazily passionate and follows his heart into all these relationships and takes on the sort of stuffy, enlightened characters and wins and produces and then dies dramatically in a duel and it all comes pouring out and everyone's singing and celebrating. There's also a very ex-Christian story in which language of, of duty and expectation and compassion and sympathy and all of these things flows everywhere. And when Hamilton's, sorry to spoil it for you if you haven't seen it, um, but when Hamilton's son dies and they have that very powerful song afterwards where he just sings, I, I just didn't know what to do. So I just went back to church and I, I started praying again and I came to see that there was actually a grace that's too, so there's moments the words don't reach, there's a grace too powerful to name. And, and then he ends up becoming, being forgiven by his wife, who he's cheated on, and this sort of very, very cathartic Christian moment in what's otherwise more of a romantic story. And, but you'd find it all over the place. Um, go on about it in Harry Potter, Christianity meets romanticism. In, and, and seven novels that have sold a billion copies between them grow out of the tension between romanticism, self-discovery, innocence, teenagers becoming themselves, drinking potions and hemlock and becoming new kinds of people and having visions and witches and wizards mingled with a fundamentally Christian story in which there are seven major chapters and loads of sacraments and biblical allusions at every key point and then somebody dies and rises again from the dead to defeat the power of death who is the evil one who wants to be master of death himself after being receiving the cup of suffering that has been drunken for him by Dumbledore. And I, now I really have spoiled it. So I'm very sorry. If you've never seen Harry Potter, you probably won't by now. But, but the thing is, it's a fusion. It's a collision between romanticism and ex-Christianity. And they, those things generate the world, the, the thoughts, the stories, the songs that our people live in, right down, I would say, to the cafe that I sat in for breakfast this morning. Just everywhere. You don't even have to look very hard. I think it's worth thinking about how those two, just give one example and um, take a sort of a practical area, which is obviously, again, sadly, in, in your own nation, to some degree in mine, been less so though, um, been very politicized, but something like trans rights. And just worth thinking about how, they, how the battle over trans rights at the moment is the result of both Christianity and Romanticism in concert with each other. Because it's quite easy to say this is about romanticism. This is basically people looking inside, discovering that they are something different from what society's told them, and then projecting that out into the world and wanting laws to be passed to recognize it, which is true. It is. It's looking within as if that's what matters. My heart matters more than my body. And so that it's quite easy to see that. So this is a romantic, in the, in, with a big, a capital R, like the romantic movement. This is a romantic thing that's happening. People look at themselves in their heart. They say, that's the true me, not the body I've been given. I must express that into the world. And you must recognize it. But it's also got a lot of Christianity to it as well, which is often harder for those of us who are kind of caught up in the, the way culture war is generally established, in, particularly in your country, but also in mine. It's harder to see there's a lot of Christianity there as well. Because what's actually going on is that 
Christianity has taught an entire society for hundreds and hundreds of years, if you find somebody who is weak or has been marginalized or oppressed, you need to lift them up. You need to make life easier for these people who are excluded everywhere else. You need to make a space where they can feel like they are safe and where they know that they're loved and valued. That's not how the ancient world treated marginalized people. That's why they were so breezy about abortion and why they were so breezy about almost all kinds of, you know, they say, Julius Caesar, you know, I went into Gaul, killed a million Gauls, came home, glory to me. Now, people not, Christian people don't talk like that, I, I hope. Um, and, and because it effectively represents a different vision of the weak or the marginalized or the oppressed. That's why Christianity has in its, in its bones, in its, you know, in its juice, Things like abolitionism and desire to lift up those who have been downtrodden. Now, the church hasn't lived it out. Much of the time, the church has done a terrible job at living that out. But in its DNA, Christianity is emancipatory for the marginalized, for the, for the weak. We, somebody, I think even the word that you brought earlier, Karen, there's something about it. It's just how we, we are all, we're so used to it. It's what Mary sings over her boys in the crib, isn't it? He's brought down the mighty, he's exalted the humble. And then you see it all the way through the letter of James and all the way through Jesus' teaching. You think this? So if you put those two together, you then have a society whose Christianity makes them say, these people, these kids who experience gender dysphoria, for example, need to be treated with the utmost respect and care and love. They need to be affirmed. They need the world to tell them that we understand and that we are going to do what we can to help them. Mingled with a romanticism that says, actually, your body is not really what matters. What matters is what's in your soul and your heart and who you feel yourself to be. You put those together. And you end up with the, the transformation, effectively, of, in society in the last seven or eight years. So I'm not saying it all good, and I'm not saying all bad. I'm saying, actually, the impulse that means that people want you know, different bathrooms for their kids is the same impulse that means people want somewhere to, well, our kids have got special needs. And the same impulse that makes people set up special needs schools, because they, which, again, pre-Christian societies don't do. They just go, why would we do that? These kids are weak, they're going to die anyway. But in a Christian society, Christianized society, you say, these people are vulnerable and marginal. Something must be done to lift them up because that's the way the gospel works. Christ dies the death of a slave. He, the strong becomes weak that the weak might become strong. We, we all believe that so deeply, even if we don't believe in Jesus anymore, that of course we want to lift up the marginal. But then when you combine that with the romantic vision of the self, you end up with a lot of the cultural, political dilemmas, debates, yelling that characterizes our day. And so I think there's, there's much more we could say, but I, I think I want to probably pause there. That's too, there's too much, that's a bit fire hosey, I suspect. There's kind of a lot, do you, is that, or do you call it a fire hydrant, would you? Fire hose, okay. When you're just trying to, you drink a lot and go, oh man, most of that went in my face. <laughs> um, so I just thought it might, make, it might be good just to pause there. And initially, if there's any kind of questions at this stage, and we'll talk tonight about how we, what we do, how we engage, how we serve, respond. But I just thought having a conceptual framework for those of us as leaders, even if it just makes you think a bit, um, some of you are going, I've read Tom Holland, I've read Carl Truman, I know all this. Bonus. Sorry to waste the last hour of your lives. You'll never get it back. Um, but for those of you going, okay, now this, that might help. But we've got certainly maybe just a few minutes to, if there are questions people want to ask now, but it might be we can you know, also percolate and think some more as the day goes on.